This morning, we're going to do something a little different. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. After hearing Dave a few weeks ago preach from Hebrews 11, it made me think of wanting to go to a certain passage here, taking just a brief moment away from our Psalms and our series there. Go to Hebrews 11 and speak of what I would like to title this morning as spiritual optometry. Spiritual optometry. Well, as you can tell, I wear glasses. I noticed many of you do as well. I've been wearing glasses since I was about 40 years old, which was yesterday. And it's a humbling time, isn't it? The moment that you need to get glasses and the moment that you go into the optometrist and you are sitting there staring at all these different lenses and that blue light to make sure or to see if you have any kind of glaucoma. I've had 20-20 vision my entire life, which was, uh, of course, a delight until one day I had to put on a pair of glasses. I should have seen it coming. My mother's always worn glasses. My father ended up wearing glasses later in his life. But still, it's strange to see the world with a different perspective. Just so you know, I'm not the only one, obviously, who's crossing this bridge. Uh, Today, according to the statistics I found, 166 million people use some kind of eyewear to be able to function in this world. Uh, Baby boomers aged 35 to 49, we are told 45 million of us wear spectacles or contact lenses. 17% of Americans who are 45 or older have some kind of vision impairment when they wear glasses or contacts, which raises the, uh, the percentage even more. One million Americans 40 and over are blind from eye disease. An additional 2.3 million are visually impaired. Blindness is hereditary, and human history, as it's progressed, shows us that we have become blinder and blinder and less ashamed of our blindness. The Lord, when he was speaking to the Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road, tells him that he was going to send him to the Gentiles to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God for the forgiveness of sins. That's Acts 26. That's the same idea maybe that Paul had in chapter 4 when he says, and if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. It's not just a physical issue. It is a spiritual issue as well. Paul says in regards to unbelievers that spiritual blindness is something that's actively being applied to their eye by Satan. The mind was born suppressing the truth, and Satan continues the suppression of the truth. When the gospel comes to individuals and their eyes are opened, they can see, but Satan already is at work in others to continually and constantly blind them. So we come this morning to an issue which is really about how you see and what you see. And the Bible is very, very clear and has a lot to say about it. Not only is it speaking of the organ of sight, the the way that we see, but again, it's about our spiritual awareness. From the very beginning of the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve, it says their eyes were opened and they knew they were naked. They had 
been awakened from their sin, and they saw that they were truly sinful in a way that they never had before. So I bring this before you because I think it's important that we kind of capture this idea of blindness because this is what our passage is going to talk about, the need to see clearly, the need to have spiritual optometry. The author of Hebrews is all about spiritual optometry because it is he who introduces to us this idea in the 11th chapter of eyes of faith what it is to have eyes of faith. He tells us, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, not seen. While the world around us says seeing is believing, the author of Hebrews says, no, not seeing is believing. In fact, the whole issue of spiritual sight is seen through this entire book, chapter 2 of Hebrews Verse 8 through 9 tells us that even though we cannot see the visible proof in the world that mankind has been subjected to him in order of his being created in the image of God, yet we do see that Jesus Christ has been made a little lower than the angels through the eyes of faith. Chapter 10, verse 25, we are told that assembling together is crucial because we need to be encouraging one another to love and good works. Why? Because we see the day drawing near. We can't see the day with a naked eye, but only through the eye of faith as it comes to us through salvation. Later in chapter 12, verse 14, we're told to pursue peace with all men, the sanctification with which no one will see the Lord, without which no one will see the Lord. To set our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, we do that because now we can see clearly. So the issue of just spiritual optometry, spiritual eyesight, is a real big concern for the author of Hebrews But nowhere is this focused more than chapter 11 itself. The whole issue of the chapter is seeing the unseen. How do you see that which you could not see? And verse 1, as I said, is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. In fact, verse 3, it is by faith that we come to know that what is seen in the world on a visible level was created out of the invisible. We are here introduced to the idea that faith pleases God and believes God is, though he is invisible to us because we see with eyes of faith. Verse 7, it says, Noah's faith is carved out of the words of God about things not seen. Again, this emphasis about spiritual optometry. Verse 13 makes this remarkable statement. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance. What they saw was the promise of God, not visible to the eye. They believed by faith with spiritual eyesight. Verse 21 of chapter 11, Isaac blesses Jacob and Esau regarding things to come. That is based on what's going to happen in the future. The future cannot be seen, so he blessed it based on his spiritual eyes of vision. So we see this over and over in the book, but it's here in chapter 11, verses 23 through 29, that we're going to concentrate on the life of Moses this morning, the life of Moses, for Moses' eyes were eyes of faith. Let me read this to you. Chapter 11, verse 23 through 29. 
By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Regarding the reproach of greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the rage of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. By faith they passed through this Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land, and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. I just want to focus on those verses this morning because I think what you're going to see in just that small section is, again, this emphasis, and we're going to wrap our minds around what it is to see with eyes of faith. So Moses' life is now in our purview, and I want to look at his life with you. These verses are going to deal with Moses and his family and the people of Israel and and the purpose of him even being inserted into this portion of Scripture is that you need to know and I need to know that to put on eyes of faith is essential unless you want to shrink back to destruction. You need to see the work of God around you so you won't stumble in the world's darkness about you. This is the key to Hebrews. You need to fear God more than you fear that which you can see. You need to fear the unseen God more than the seen issues of your life. And so it's these verses that are going to give us different prescriptions, if you will, three prescriptions that need to be filled so that you might see clearly. And you're going to see this idea go all the way through these verses over and over again. I'm going to give it to you up front, that the eye of faith prompts the heart of courage to move the feet of obedience. You're going to see that the eye of faith prompts the heart of courage to move the feet of obedience. What are these characteristics that I'm speaking of? Again, taking notes, the eyes of faith are nearsighted concerning the promises of God. The eyes of faith are farsighted concerning the prize of God. And the eyes of faith are hindsighted concerning the protection of God. And don't worry if you didn't get that. I'm going to go over it and over it again and again. But first, we're going to look at how the eyes of faith are, number one, nearsighted concerning the promises of God. You have to have eyes of faith. You have to have really true spiritual optometry. And the first benefit of that that you're going to see is that the eyes of faith are nearsighted concerning the promises of God. Now, physically, nearsightedness is the condition of seeing clear objects that are near when objects seem far off dim. Nearsightedness is the condition of seeing clearly objects that are near when objects far off seem dim. Spiritually speaking, nearsightedness is the ability to see right before you the promises of God in everyday life while refusing to allow the evil world around you to come into focus. Sometimes face eye rests on what God is doing right before you as you live in your life, not allowing yourself to be distracted by all of the issues that are in the world. Now, saying that, you must understand Moses, in many ways, was a visionary. Moses was a visionary. Here's a man who led the Exodus. 
He witnessed the parting of the Red Sea. He, he led a congregation of two million Jews through trackless wilderness. He sustained himself on the bread of angels, manna for years. He followed a towering pillar of cloud by day and sat beneath the fire of God, hovering over the camp by night. He was, as the martyr Stephen declared, mighty in word and deed. He is famous in the book of Hebrews. In fact, he's mentioned 11 times in the book. But how did Moses, this visionary, received his eyes of faith. Ultimately, God had to make him a visionary. God gave him eyes of faith, but temporally speaking, he inherited them from his family. Moses was born a slave as a Hebrew slave in the land of Egypt during a time that we all understand was under great distress and fear. There had been another Hebrew who had come into town before Moses. His name was Joseph. And though the forgotten Joseph existed, to the Hebrews, Joseph was a megastar. He was the son of Jacob, sold into slavery by his own brothers at the age of 17, taken into Egypt, became a successful man in everything he did. Handsome, so handsome that he caught the eye of his master's wife. He refused to be with her. He was thrown into prison for years, became successful. He was eventually a part of Pharaoh's dream team. He saved Egypt from ruin during a great time of famine. He forgave his brothers. You remember all of the story that was so impactful. And it ends his life by bringing all the Hebrews to Egypt to save them from extinction. extinction. And throughout all of this, God's glory is in every area of his life. But important for us to know for this morning, he brought to Egypt the knowledge of the one true God and his plan and promise of deliverance concerning Israel. Had it not happened through Joseph, no one in Israel, especially the family of Moses, would even have known this great God. Hebrews 11.22 says that before he died, that he made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel. He prophesied that Israel would have an exodus one day. And then 350 years pass. And nothing is said, and no mention of any kind of deliverer or redeemer was even spoken of. The Hebrews were treated like animals by the Egyptians. They were forced to do hard labor. It was intent on killing them, not just sustaining them. But the Bible says that through persecution, they multiplied and kept growing and growing and growing. And the Pharaoh, who knew not Joseph, became scared that the Hebrews would take over Egypt because they were growing at such an alarming rate. So he decided that he must work them to death. He decided to kill the Jews. He would have to be very, very indirect at a time, but then he became very direct, and he insisted on the slaughter of Hebrew boys. This is the wicked world that Moses was born into. But our text tells us that Moses' parents lived by faith. Again, verse 23, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw he was a beautiful child. Even in the midst of this Holocaust, even in the midst of this horrible situation before them, they believe that God is going to bring them through this disaster. 
The Hebrews needed a leader. They didn't have a leader to take them out of the exodus that Joseph had spoken of. And so Moses' parents believed that the deliverer was their son. Now, how do I know that? Because the text says he was beautiful. Now, Stephen in Acts 7.25 describes Moses, describes Moses by the time he was 40 years old as having a sense of the purpose of his life. And this is what it says in Acts 7.25 about Moses. And he supposed his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him. But they did not understand. So here's the question, if you're tracking with me at all. Where did Moses get this understanding of his purpose? Who taught him that he was to be the deliverer? His parents. By faith, Moses' parents saw his beauty as a sufficient cause to risk their life. So you might ask, and I might ask, in what way is that faith? And in what way is that helping them know that he was the deliverer? Most parents would die for their children. Most parents believe their child is beautiful. I think most of us would say that. Maybe not the moment they were born, but, but after that, as they grew and got rid of the pine cone, eventually you would sit there and say that, oh, isn't my child beautiful? So how is that hiding of Moses because he was beautiful an act of faith? Why would the author of Hebrews use this argument as a way to convict his readers that they need to have faith? Well, the scriptures, just so you know, speak of Moses' loveliness at birth three times. Exodus 2, he's beautiful. Acts 7, he's lovely. And here in Acts 11, again, called beautiful. Physical beauty is seen in the Bible as a mark of uh, men as well as Saul, for instance. He was called handsome. David was called beautiful eyes, a handsome appearance. And if you ask Potiphar's wife, uh, she obviously thought that uh, Joseph was beautiful as well. And yet we never see the relationship of beauty as being a spiritual indication of leadership. Yet we never see beauty in that way. Proverbs 31.30 tells us that beauty is vain. All the women here know that. God doesn't look at the appearance. He looks at the heart. The Lord Jesus Christ didn't have anything that was physically attractive about him. Isaiah 53 says there's no physical appearance that would attract men to him. So in what way is Moses' beauty an indication of anything that might be a special calling before God? Well, the Greek here in chapter 11 for beauty literally means town bred or of the town. And it could refer to a quality or appearance as beautiful or handsome or fair. So evidently, there was something in Moses' beauty that made them know that he was no ordinary baby. He was no ordinary child. His appearance was not a matter of just chance. Josephus, the historian, tells us that the Jewish belief was that God came to Moses' father in a dream and in answer to his prayers would preserve Moses for he was to deliver the Hebrews from Egypt. Early church father Christostom says that the sight of the child's fairness drew them on to faith by which they perceived that in a way that was more than natural, he was the object of God's grace. John Calvin believed that there must have been some kind of mark, maybe a birthmark that made a, a distinction in his beauty that marked him as a man who was the leader. Well, whatever it was, 
Whatever, there was something in Moses' appearance as a baby that led them to believe that God intended him to do something great. What an amazing thought. Just looking at how handsome your child is or how beautiful your daughter is and to sit there and say, God's going to do something great with you. Not just become a model, not just become some kind of entertainer, but a leader of the people in which he was born into. Again, it's natural that parents love their children. It's natural that parents find their children beautiful. But to risk your life by faith because of the beauty of your child, there was something very, very supernatural in that that happened. And so the text says, by faith, they followed. By faith, when he was born and hidden for three months, they saw he was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Verse 23 Very specifically, and I don't know if you've ever thought this thought before, but Moses' parents were given a sign by Moses' appearance that opened their eyes of faith. When they saw him and saw his beauty, something about it allowed them to understand that something very supernatural was in this child. You see, spiritual eyes see God's promise in the nearness of the most simple affections of our lives. God allows us in the most simple things that are very close to us to understand those things that should prompt us to faith. The eye of faith prompts the heart of courage to move the feet of obedience. Now, I know that's kind of an interesting thing to ponder, but Moses' parents did not see God's promised deliverer because of their own intuition, because of their own brilliance. But by faith, the author says, understanding that they did about God and understanding what they knew about the promise of a deliverer, they were given faith and they acted in faith. Now, our text tells us that they hid him for three months. Do you know how hard that would be to hide an infant for three months with all the sounds and smells and and sewage of an infant coming out? I mean, that that would drive you nuts trying to hide that. Every moment, every breath was a life and death risk. Hiding him in any way, they risk everything for the hope that his life would be spared. But the text says that they did it by faith. Faith in what the invisible God had promised as seen in what was right before their eyes. Now, when Christian parents are given a child, they too see right before their eyes God's promise of deliverance and the natural beauty of a child's faith, not the same way Moses' parents did, but in a way where they see that God has loved them. They see whether the child is physically beautiful or it's just their heart for their child creates that beauty. But this was something very, very different, very, very profound and very special. Moses' parents thought that they would never have that chance to educate or to exemplify the truth of God to their son, The scripture says that all they had was three months after the time that they came. They could no longer keep the baby in hiding. And they acted in faith by putting him into an ark and sending him into the hands of mystery. Think about what faith that might have taken. What kind of spiritual sight that must have had to send your only begotten son, the one God appointed to deliver the Hebrews into the hands of the enemy. Sounds very much like the father, doesn't it? The father of above sending his own son into the hands of the enemy to rescue the Jews. What an amazing thing that must have been and what trust in the promises of God. And in a matter of hours, 
listen, God returned the baby Moses back into the hands of his own mother so that she might feed him upon the milk of her own breast and the milk of God's word. So God did not promise that which he could not deliver. In the midst of unthinkable circumstances, hope against hope, the faith of two believers of God was the tool that God used to position his chosen man to enter the courts of Pharaoh. And like Joseph before him, while all the time he could be taught of his mission before God. So what I want you to take away from just this first point is even the most severe circumstances, eyes of faith, trust God's promises for they see them. They see them in the circumstances right before them. Every man or woman of faith needs to be a little nearsighted spiritually. Sometimes the world is just so perverse, it is so tempting, it is so challenging that the child of God must choose to see the blessings which are right before them and refuse the worldly circumstances around them. That is so key for you to understand. Focus on, first, the blessings of godly relationships. Focus on the blessing of your Bible. Focus on the blessings of your health and of your church and of prayer and of living righteously. All those are near you. All those are very close to you to the exclusion of the hurricane that is this world. So God's promises are near, and that's what Moses' parents knew. They saw the promise of God's deliverance through the eyes of faith, which prompted them to not fear the king's edict, which moved them to hide their son for three months under impossible odds. The eyes of faith prompt the heart of courage to move the feet of obedience. Number two, the second feature that we hear and we see about the eye of faith is not only does the eye of faith is nearsighted, but the eye of faith is farsighted concerning God's prize. The eye of faith, number two, is farsighted concerning God's prize. Where did I get this from? We'll look at verses 24 through 26. By faith, he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Regarding the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He was looking to the reward. Now, you all probably know this, but physically farsightedness is the ability to see objects far off while not focusing on objects that are near with any clarity. Spiritually then, farsightedness is the ability to blur the allurement of the visible world around you in order to focus only on the invisible prize of God before you. So sometimes faith's eyes rest on what God has purposed way beyond them not allowing what is occurring near them in their life to distract their hope. In some ways, faith can be nearsighted, but in other ways, you're going to see faith can be farsighted. Now, according to Acts 7.23, if you ever have a chance to read that, this amazing chapter, of course, where Stephen is confessing uh, as he's about to be killed all of the history of Israel. Moses, it says, remained in the house of Pharaoh as the son of Pharaoh's daughter for 40 years. Verse 22 of Acts 7, you don't have to go there, but you can write it down, tells us that Moses then for 40 years was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians and he was a man of power and word and deed. 
Moses had been educated in the greatest of all universities. He had been educated in the pagan religion of the Egyptian gods. He knew the ancient hieroglyphics. He knew the study of engineering. He knew theories of astrology and the arts and sciences of all the great Egyptian dynasty because they were at his disposal as he was growing. He was the guy with the advanced degree from the Temple of the Sun. He had a chest full of medals. This guy was special, and everyone in Egypt knew it. How many times must he have attended seminars on the Israelite problem? We got a problem with the Jews that are here. We got a problem with the Hebrews. How can we get rid of them? How can we work this situation? And yet Moses listened with different ears and saw their idols with different eyes. Moses, like all Hebrew boys, was circumcised, but Egyptian boys were not. So Moses knew he was different. Moses knew from the very beginning of his life that something was different about him. But more than that, Moses knew who he was. Now, you say, what? Yes, he grew up conscious of his identity and believed the promises of the Lord to Hebrews. He knew what God had promised, and he saw himself as a deliverer. Moses must have marveled at the wondrous design and purpose of God in the placement of him in the palace, the purpose of his education, the purpose of the fact that he was protected. All of this must have just blown him away because he knew he was God's chosen man. Verse 24 tells us that in spite of all these accolades, when Moses grew up, he refused to be identified as Pharaoh's daughter's son any longer Day in and day out, he had witnessed through this palace of splendor the murder and the humiliation of the people he was supposed to deliver. He saw their living conditions were deplorable and horrid, and he enjoyed the pleasures of Egypt even in the midst of it. So he knew something had to happen. Moses knew the afflictions of the Hebrews, how the Hebrews had murdered the firstborn male children. uh, uh, The the Egyptians had murdered the Hebrews' firstborn children. The, The population explosion from these aliens had called in that kind of severe act. And then finally, it says one day when he couldn't take it anymore, Acts 7.23, it entered his mind to visit his brethren. Acts 7.23, he entered his mind to visit his brethren. John Calvin writes, at long last, the Spirit of God aroused his mind as from sleep to go and visit the brethren whom he had long neglected. Now, think about this. I know I'm just giving you this like uh, like a fire hose, but think about this. For 40 years, Moses lived in the most unbelievable splendor. The pleasures of Egypt were for his taking. 40 years, he had... uh, complete access to the vault of Pharaoh. And he had Fort Knox as his stomping ground. But when he saw his brother in in slavery and hard acts of labor being beaten, his eyes of faith became clear and he did what is super unnatural. He refused riches and he chose persecution. Why? Verse 26, for he was looking for the reward. He was looking for the reward. The eye of faith prompted courage to move the feet of obedience. He knew he was to be the deliverer. That's what Stephen tells us. He knew he was to deliver this people. In the world we live in, it's so unnatural to have pleasure and and, and success and fame offered to you and, and then to 
forego all of that to be persecuted? The world would say you're, you're, you're a masochist if you do that. The world would say you must love pain. What a fool you must be to reject privilege and, and prominence and, and pleasure and plenty for persecution. But what the world cannot see is the prize of God the prize of God. It is against the nature of man to reject power and riches, but the man of God sees through it. Look at verse 25. For it is passing. It is passing. James says, come now, you rich, and weep, and howl for your miseries, for you coming upon you, for your riches have rotten, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days you have stored up your treasure. So at 40 years of age, Moses' eyes opened and he saw through it. He saw through the whole thing. He saw through the whole ploy. And he refused to be called Pharaoh's son. He refused to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. He refused to indirectly heed to the evil through silence. And so he chose the reward of God. He chose to be with the people that he had come to deliver. When people see the feet of faith move. It's not because the eyes of faith seek reproach and pain. It's not because you and I are, are again, masochists in any form of the word, but we run toward the riches and the glory that will never fade away reserved in heaven for us. We run toward that that has ultimate worth in this life and in the life to come. The apostle Peter says to obtain inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you. You see, the eyes of faith are farsighted concerning the prize of God. When Moses saw God glittering far brighter than the riches of Egypt, he divorced himself from Pharaoh and he married the people of God. Moses had grown up. He had grown up. Literally, he became great. So he made the decision between the seen and the unseen. So he pulled off the headgear of Pharaoh and he started to wear sandals with the people of God. The man of God, the women of God, will always choose the people of God every time. That's why Hebrews also tells us, do not neglect your assembling together as is the habit of son. You will always be with the people of God. You will always assemble together. And Moses, and I think one of the most unnatural things possible to a common man, he, he would rather identify himself with this pitiful, rejected people than live in the lap of luxury. That is such a, an amazing thing. Why? Because faith. Faith by faith, he saw the rejected people as the reproach of Christ, and he sought the glories of Christ. He wanted the reward of Christ. Moses chose to do that. Think about this. He chose not to focus on the world and its influence, but he focused on the prize that was set before him. So don't say that you're ever vulnerable to the allurement of the world, like you can't do anything about it. Don't sit there and say, well, Tom, I was born in Las Vegas. What am I supposed to do? None of that is, is relevant. Don't say you're immune to it. Oh, I'm so strong. I can do that. We could easily, easily etch into stone names of 40 or more famous Christians of our own generation who no longer walk with Christ because they failed to fix their eyes on the prize. They weren't fixing their eye of faith. People come to you and will sit there and go, come on, everybody does it. You deserve it. Come on. You've worked so hard. Come on. It's just a little passing sin. But Moses said, no, 
I see far enough down the road to know what will happen, and I choose the life that cannot fade away. Verse 26, the word considering. Considering helps us to understand why Moses thought the way he did. It means to think beforehand. He knew about the pain was worth the gain. He understood that. Also, it says here in verse 26, 26, regarding the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. It says that these riches were greater than the treasures of Egypt. Christ's reproaches are greater than the riches of the world. To be reproached for Christ is better. Jesus Christ, our Lord, was 1,500 years away from this incident. So how in the world is the author of Hebrews telling us that he knew about Christ? Well, the answer is, if you follow me, he didn't know about Christ. But the text says that those who suffer in obedience to the prize ultimately are suffering for the reproaches that are meant for Jesus Christ. Paul, likewise, and. Philippians 3.10 tells us that he would say, I want that prize that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed into his death that I might obtain the resurrection from the dead. It says that I want to reach forward to what is the gaining of this prize. He wants to gain the prize that can never be lost. He wants to gain the prize of Christ. J.C. Ryle in his book, Holiness puts it this way. He has a little treatment on Moses, a fantastic treatment. He says, faith told Moses that affliction and suffering were not real evils. They were the school of God in which he trains the children of grace for glory. He, the medicines which are needful to purify corrupt wills, the furnace that must burn away our dross, the knife which must cut the ties that bind us to the world. Marvel not that Moses refused greatness, riches, and pleasure. He looked far forward. He saw with the eye of faith kingdoms crumbling into dust, riches making themselves wings and flying away, pleasures landing on to death and judgment, and Christ only and his little flock enduring forever. He saw with the eye of faith. There's a third aspect to this eye of faith that I want you to think of this morning. The third aspect is not only is the eye of faith uh, nearsighted and farsighted, but the eye of faith is hindsighted. The eye of faith is hindsighted concerning God's protection. You know, it's always said that history is his story. We know that. We've repeated it so many times, but it truly is real. In other words, when the people of faith look back at history, they look up toward Christ. When they look back to see what has happened to them, they look up to see the event because it's led them more toward the Savior. God's fingerprints are seen in every area of your life if you have the eyes of faith to see it. This is spiritual hindsightedness. Spiritual hindsightedness is the ability to see the protective hand of God, what has controlled your past, so that to advance you forward in the things that are before you in the future. And sometimes eyes of faith rest on what God has done behind you to give you courage to expect what comes before you. In some respects, we know that the whole scripture has been recorded for us, that we know how to live, 1 Corinthians 10. But in other respects, the main subject, the lead actor and director is really God. God is the one who has our attention. 
The word of God then, in truth, is the record of God's faithfulness to his own. But each life is recorded in the scripture, is no different than each life that's reading the scripture. So though this happened to Moses, and you might think, oh, this would never happen to me, the truth is, this is the same message for you and I. When God writes concerning his faithfulness to Israel, his protection of them, we see God's protection of us as well. Now, nowhere is this seen more clearly than as the text goes on than about this whole idea of the Passover. It speaks of this in verse 27, by faith he left Egypt, not fearing the rage of the king, for he endured as seeing him who's unseen. And by faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. Let me go over this with you just for a second to kind of get some perspective on what it is that I'm saying. Before Moses had ever seen the plagues, before Moses had ever seen uh, the Passover of the Red Sea, he was still already a man of spiritual hindsightedness in the fact that he could see God's protection of his life in the miraculous events of his life. Again, verse 27, by faith he left Egypt not fearing the rage of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. The eye of faith prompts the heart of courage to move the feet of obedience. So what was it, verse 27, that Moses saw? What was it that he saw that made him not fear the wrath of the king, that made him move forward to leave his hometown, to go into this place that he had never been, this desert, The text says, as seeing him who is unseen. Now, this verse has historical arguments as to exactly when the author is speaking of what portion of Moses' life. Uh, Some people would say this refers to Moses' second departure from Egypt when he brought the Hebrews out of captivity. Therefore, seeing him who is unseen refers to the burning bush miracle. That's possible. However, if that were true, then the whole chronology of the chapter of 11 would be kind of thrown off. I believe it's best to understand this verse as referring to the first departure of Moses from Egypt after he had murdered the Egyptian and was found out. The problem some people would say with that idea is not consistent with the book of Exodus because Exodus 2 verses 14 through 15 says, Then Moses was afraid and said, surely the matter has become known. When Pharaoh heard of the matter, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh. So he was afraid, critics would say. So that doesn't square with what Hebrews is saying. But I believe the Hebrew, the author of Hebrews is telling us the real story that Moses was not fearing the wrath of the king. I believe Moses was afraid when he realized what he had done in murdering the Egyptian. Yes, I believe he was afraid that he would be found out as a murderer and a traitor. I believe he was also afraid of God. God knew that it happened long before Pharaoh did. And the author of Hebrews is telling us really just kind of the real scoop. Moses fled away from Pharaoh because he was trying to preserve his own life. But more, Pharaoh's wrath ultimately was not what he feared. John Knox says this way, John Knox, the Scottish reformer, one does not fear the queen of Scotland when one has been on his knees before the king of kings. That's exactly what was happening with Moses. Moses endured in the desert alongside walls of comfort with no food or water, leaving what might seem have been the plan of God. The plan of God for my life was back in Egypt. 
But no, he endured. He was steadfast. He kept on going. He held to his purpose. Why? Because he was looking with the eyes of faith as seeing him who is unseen. Some translators translate this as he kept continually before his eyes. He endured as if he saw God. He endured as someone who actually saw God. He endured because his vision was ever before his eyes. What was the vision? One cannot see what is unseen, but he endured as if he had seen one who was unseen. How could he? What, what happened? What kind of miraculous event would give him this vision? Uh, really, nothing except the past. The only thing he had to see was a grap- grappling with the past in hindsight. Moses knew God would protect him even through this trial because God had always protected him through every trial. All he had to do was look back Use hindsight to see how God had taken a baby destined for death, placed him in the palace of plenty, and then moved him into the the ground of his people. Moses knew what he was. I know this is something that sometimes people are not familiar. He knew he was to deliver his people. He endured as if he saw the God who had called him. And then by evidence, without any other evidence that his life would be protected, he based his movement, his feet moved because he knew what God had done in history past. Chuck Swindoll puts it like this. There is no sphinx of Moses in Egypt today because Moses left Egypt. Who needs Egypt when God says, there's an exodus in my plan? If you're committed to Egypt more than to an exodus, then you're not committed to God, end quote. So when we look back, we should look up. When we look back in hindsight over the history of our lives, we look up. Verse 28, by faith, again, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. Now, by the time we get to uh, verse 27 and verse 28, lots have happened, and I'm gonna really shrink this down. By the time we come to this verse, remember, Moses had been in the desert 40 years. He had waited 40 years tending sheep every day, saying to himself, and you can probably relate to this, I thought God was going to use me. I thought in some way God was going to, uh, to use my life. My mother and father told me how beautiful I was and how he would use me because God said that he used me and I left Egypt and the pleasures of silver. But did I do the right thing? Was I premature? Have I done this wrongly? Did I not have faith? No miracles, no sight, only hindsight for 40 years. Moses had begun his spiritual apprenticeship in spiritual leadership, listen to this. He spent his first 40 years becoming a somebody so he could spend his second 40 years becoming a nobody. Then one day God appeared in a burning bush when Moses was 80 years old, that's eight zero, and told him it was time for change because apprenticeship was over. And the rest is history. The rest is history. Moses left the familiar to do the unusual twice in his life. First, he left the familiar Egypt to the surreal, unusual median, and then now he's going to leave the familiar of shepherding sheep to do the super unusual task of delivering a nation. 
the Lord had spoken to Moses to command Pharaoh to let the Hebrews go. And the Lord knew that Pharaoh would harden his heart, so God hardened the heart for him. He prepared 10 plagues for him to go through. We won't rehearse all of this. There's so much more information I have than I have time. But let me skip to the good part. God protected the Israelites while he plagued the Egyptians. What, what does that mean? I'm not saying that's good that they were plagued. But again, the idea is God protected his people. They came to know about God's power through suffering, and God protected them. Which brings us to verse 28, and then I shall end. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood. By faith, the Pharaoh of Moses' infancy, who had done deeds that rivals Hitler, was now the one that was... Uh, that, that had been duplicated even in the way that when Jesus was born, Herod tried to do the same thing. The man who Moses called granddaddy could never get the blood of baby Hebrew boys off his hands. And so Pharaoh was now going to be held accountable like all of us who turn and don't obey. God told Moses in Hebrews 11, five hard facts. Something's going to happen at midnight. All the Egyptians' firstborn will die. There will be a national distress. Israel will be protected, and there will be an exodus. And so Moses, without even thinking it through, without even asking or questioning God, cut a lamb's throat, smeared the blood on the doorpost, and God passed over them without destroying the firstborn. Moses knew God. He believed God, he loved God, and he used his eyes of faith to secure what became ultimately the ground history of the Israelite people and ultimately for the Lord Jesus Christ to come. That's ultimate hindsight, isn't it? Isn't it to think that far? The God who has been before Israel is now behind Israel for the rest of their lives. So this is what we have here in conclusion. I just want to close with verse 29. And the Egyptians, when they attempted, were drowned. The Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. Why did they attempt? Because they lacked faith. They had not the faith, the faith that belonged to Moses. They didn't look to God. They didn't see with eyes of faith. Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher recounts the following words, and I'll say this quickly, and then you can enjoy your lunch. The preacher began by saying, he's remembering the time that he was saved. Charles Spurgeon is such a great, great thing. His little, little deacon came up. It was snowing, and no one was at the church, and Spurgeon went there to hear a pastor, but he wasn't there. It was only a deacon. The deacon had no real kind of gift of speaking, and so he just kept repeating Isaiah 45, 20, Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no one else. Over and over, that was his sermon. And Spurgeon ends with this. He says, the preacher began by saying, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now, looking don't take a great deal of pains. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. Hey, many on thee are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Look to God the Father. No, look to him, and by Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some of you say, well, there must 
wait for the Spirit's working. We have not business with that just now. Look unto Christ. The text says, look to me. Then the good man followed up his text this way. Look unto me, I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I raise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me, look to me. And then the virgin, knowing him a stranger in the congregation, he said, young man, you look very miserable. And you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, if you obey this moment, you will be saved. Lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do, young man, look to Christ. Look, look, you have nothing to do but look and live. And Spurgeon recounts, I saw at once the way of salvation. I do not know what else he said. I didn't take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought, like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, that the people only looked and were healed, and so it was with me. I'd been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard the word look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could have almost looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun, and I could have risen that instinct in song with the most enthusiastic of them that the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him that someone had told me before, trust Christ and you shall be saved. That is true spiritual eyesight. Let's pray. Father, so much, so many things to speak of and so little time, but Father, we thank you Because what we see in the life of Moses, what we see in his example, is a man who had the right kind of sight, the eyes of faith that look at the things very near, what is precious before them, and don't allow the world to to crowd in that or crowd out that love. We have the eyes that also sometimes are hindsighted. We look behind us to see the things that you have done because we don't see necessarily the things in front of us. And sometimes we must be very specific, Lord, in our way we look and how we look and to whom we look. So we ask that you would, for every individual here today, give us the desire and the prompting to look to you in the midst of our distress, to look to you in this new year that's before us, and to look to you knowing that you are the Savior. And when we see you as you are through Holy Scripture, then truly we have the sight that you have saved. And we ask you to bless us this day in Christ's name. Amen.